Welcome to the Minds of the Early Church podcast. This podcast seeks to understand and develop the way of thinking of the early church, especially its spiritual and intellectual insights, in order to guide us in our time. Developing this way of thinking in ourselves will also give us new ways of navigating a quickly changing world and will allow us to engage the modern world in a fresh, exciting, and authentic way. The Liturgy, Part 2 Old Covenant Liturgy and New Covenant Liturgy To recap the last episode, we began looking at liturgical worship in the Old Testament. We determined that liturgical worship has three general characteristics. One, it is highly structured, both in terms of its rituals and in its calendar of feast days that determine different elements in its worship services. Two, There are different roles for priests, for assistants, and for the congregation. And three, it has sacrifices and an altar on which is centered the worship of the people. Now with that said, everyone should bear in mind that there has always been both liturgical worship and non-liturgical worship. Throughout the Bible, we see both side by side. We see this first with Abraham, when he would speak with God than an Eliezer his servant, when he prayed before seeking a wife for Isaac. Yet these same men also engaged in sacrificial rituals, which are by definition liturgical. Moses prayed to the Lord before the splitting of the Red Sea, and he is the one by whom the law was given, which prescribed Jewish liturgical prayer and worship. David prayed many times in the book of Samuel and wrote half of the Psalms. Yet he is also the one whose heart moved him to build a temple to the Lord, which would be the place of liturgical prayer and worship. Also, we see our Lord Jesus pray many times. Yet he also went to the temple, and he also engaged in the Passover rituals. After the resurrection of Christ, we have more examples of non-liturgical worship existing side by side with liturgical worship, such as in Ananias praying over the Apostle Paul, and acknowledging that God has chosen him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Yet we see the Apostle Paul attending a liturgy and receiving the laying on of hands by the elders of the Church of Antioch, along with the Apostle Barnabas, to be set apart for preaching the gospel as apostles. But some of you might stop and wonder, where does it say that the Apostle Paul attended a liturgy to receive this ministry? The answer to that is in Acts 13 verses 1 through 3. Some of you will read it and say that it does not say anything about a liturgy. It will not appear that way in English translations, such as the King James Version and the New King James Version, where it reads in verse 2, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted. But if you read the New International Version and the New Revised Standard Version, it reads while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting. But if you go to the Greek, the word used here is liturgonton, If they were simply lifting up their hearts to the Lord and praying by mutual decision, the word the Greek would have used is proskineo or prosefkome, but the word used here is the one that indicates liturgical worship. The same word was used to describe Zechariah's the priest's service in the temple in Luke 1. Now, if you have not listened to the previous episode on what is liturgy, I highly recommend you do so now so you can understand these terms. 
So the matter of worship should be viewed as something along these lines. Liturgical prayer is the source and model on which our personal prayers take shape, like how the community is the source and model from which individuals take shape. Personal prayers also add meaning to the act of gathering together with people who have also sought God in their personal prayers, just like individuals also make up the community. You cannot have one without the other. Both are necessary. This brings us back to the purpose of liturgical worship in the Old Testament. Bear in mind that there was no priesthood in the Old Testament until the giving of the law, the Torah. When the Torah was given, it prescribed priesthood directly because of the many rituals that had to be carried out. These rituals were to fix the minds and hearts of the Israelites with awe, reverence, and gratitude to God. It further taught and reinforced what sin was, its effects, and how God watched over us. This system of rituals is understood by the Greek word toxis, which means rank or order. There was an order of priesthood that was hereditary that carried out the rituals associated with the Torah. Most importantly, the temple rituals were centered on sin. The fact that the many generations of priests and many sacrifices over the course of a lifetime made it clear that there was something incomplete, because if something goes on and on, it is due to an imperfection or a lack of achieving a goal. As we see this develop out in the Old Testament, the Israelites multiplied sin upon sin. They went against the Torah, neglected temple worship, and went after other gods. When that had come to its boiling point, God sent the Israelites into exile and allowed his own temple to be burned to make clear that he doesn't need any of this. Rather, all these things were for the benefit of the Israelites, to live lives of virtue in accordance with the purpose God had for humanity. That is, what type of character God intended for human beings to have originally. At that time, there comes a prophecy to Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah 31 about a new covenant. The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. This prophecy is seductively subversive, because everything that characterized the covenant of the Torah, which was centered on sin, comes to an end where God points out, their sin I will remember no more. When the Old Testament was translated to Greek, the word new used to translate new covenant in Greek is Kaini. Kaini does not indicate new as something that has recently occurred, like what you see on the news, but rather it indicates something that is original in quality, as in something that has not been seen before 
and has a new function. If that is the case, then what has come before is old, or in the Greek, paleos. Paleos does not mean old as in having come earlier, but old in the sense of obsolete as in no longer useful. This is exactly what the author of the epistle to the Hebrews argues throughout Hebrews 8, especially verse 13. The author of the epistle to the Hebrews also points out the messianic prophecy of Psalm 110 about the nature of Christ. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The word for order here, as mentioned earlier, is taxis, which indicates an order based on a system of rituals. It is evident that that order by nature differs from that prescribed by the Torah to the Old Covenant priests, because Melchizedek, a non-Jewish priest mentioned in Genesis 14, was not a Levitical priest and lived before the Torah was given. And indeed, this point is expanded upon in the Epistle to the Hebrews. Further, Hebrews argues, saying, Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, the Torah, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek, and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, of necessity there is also a change of the law. Hebrews chapter 7 verses 11 through 12. It is even clear, as mentioned earlier, that the Old Testament liturgy indicated by its very nature that there was something to be perfected that was not coming from the rituals contained in their temple worship. Now, as it is clear that our Lord is priest according to the order of Melchizedek, and not according to the Old Covenant priesthood, then there must come a change in the law, because the law and the priesthood are necessarily connected. If the law has changed, then the priesthood has changed. If the priesthood has changed, then the law has changed. You cannot have a priest from a different order operate under the order of the Torah, because there is no explanation or instruction in the Torah regarding his duties. Is this what we see in the New Testament? It is. In Hebrews 8 verse 6 it reads, But Jesus has now obtained a more excellent ministry, and to that degree he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted through better promises. Some translations at this point read, established on better promises. Now this verse is saying something very critical, but it is not apparent in our translations. That word which is in some translations translated as enacted, and in others established, in Greek is the verb nenomothetete. It is the perfect tense verb form of the Greek noun nomotheto, which means to give as law. This verb was used in Hebrews chapter 7 verses 11 through 12, which we just quoted a little bit earlier, and was translated in that instance as receive the law. This noun that corresponds to the verb is used in James chapter 4 verse 12 to describe God. This word is a technical term in Jewish Greek usage, which refers to the Torah. So the meaning is something along these lines, as the complete Jewish Bible so eloquently translates, but now the work Jesus has been given to do is far superior to theirs, just as the covenant he mediates is better. For this covenant has been given as Torah on the basis of better promises. This is a new Torah. So what does all this mean? This raises an extremely important question. 
If what we have been given in the new covenant in the life, teachings, and actions of Christ, and its delivery through the apostles, has been given to us as Torah, and that upon the promise of a better covenant, one which is new in quality, then what does that mean for our worship? It means a new liturgical system, one that is based on the new covenant. So let's revisit what characterized liturgical prayer and worship. Number one, it is highly structured, both in terms of its rituals and in its calendar of feast days that determine different elements in its worship services. Number two, there are different roles for priests, for assistants, and for the congregation. And number three, it has sacrifices and an altar on which is centered the worship of the people. But what is the new liturgy to be centered on? The Old Covenant liturgy was centered on the continuity of sin, then our liturgy must be centered on the redemption and victory of Christ. So what does that make of the calendar? Well, to begin with, for early Christians, their gathering was on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. Why? Because this commemorated the resurrection of our Lord, which was on a Sunday, and the fulfillment of the promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit, which also happened on a Sunday. Because Pentecost, the day on which that happened, was exactly 50 days from the resurrection, meaning it also fell on a Sunday. In early Christian culture, this day came to be known as Kyriaki, or the Lord's Day. Until today, in Greek, this is the name for Sunday, having replaced the earlier Imera Eliu, which means the day of the sun. Almost all European languages and countries from Greece westward also refer to Sunday as the Lord's Day, but derive its name from the Latin word for Lord, Domenico, such as Domingo in Spanish. They also changed the name of Saturday to Sabado to commemorate the Sabbath. Now what about the priesthood? This is the second element of liturgical worship. It is very clear from the epistle to the Hebrews that our Lord is the High Priest, But does this mean he is the only priest in the New Covenant liturgy? It did not say that he is the only priest, but he is the high priest. Does he have other priests with him? That question can be answered by finding priestly titles applied to both our Lord and to others in the New Testament. This is what we find. Throughout the New Testament, our Lord is given titles such as overseer, which is episkopos in Greek, Shepherd, which is pimen in Greek, pastor in Latin, from where we get pastor in English, and apostle, that others are also given in their ministry serving our Lord. The word episkopos means bishop, and we find mention of bishops all over the New Testament, beginning with the apostles. Bishops were higher-ranking priests because they were overseers, but not in the sense of simply being of a higher rank such as a supervisor, but more appropriately, this word means the guardian of what has been passed down. Also, the elders that are described in many places in the New Testament, and clearly in the book of Acts and the epistles, are not simply elders as those who are older in the congregation. Timothy, the disciple of St. Paul, is called an elder in the epistles addressed to him, even though the apostle Paul clearly describes him as a youth. He tells him that he received the eldership by the laying on of hands, meaning this is an office, not something related to age. 
This laying on of hands was the foundation of his ministry, not the affirmation of the people. This is also how the apostles received their ministries. This is how the bishops and elders received their ministries too. It is interesting to note that the word elder is presbyteros, which when shortened is the source of our English word priest. There was also another type of minister which was the deacon. Deacons, in the Greek diakonos, which means minister or servant, were also ordained by the laying on of hands. As is clear in the New Testament, they were not simply servants, but they were assisting in the service of the apostles, that part which was strenuous. As the apostles justify their ordination in Acts chapter 6 by saying, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. From Acts chapter 6 verses 2 through 4. In the pastoral epistles addressed to Timothy and Titus, it lays out requirements, some very high for ordaining deacons, but some may raise the objection that all of us as Christians are priests, and that there is a general priesthood of all believers, as is evident in many places of the New Testament, such as 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 through 5, and Revelation chapter 1 verse 6, chapter 5 verse 10, and chapter 20 verse 6. To answer this, the whole nation of Israel was also called a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation, in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. But as is clear, not all were to serve as priests in the temple. There was a non-liturgical priesthood, which this is. The service of this general priesthood is to carry the teachings of God to the rest of the world. That is what all Christians are called to do. Then there is a liturgical priesthood such as those serving in the temple, which was not open to the whole nation, but only to the descendants of Aaron and to the Levites in their ministries of assistance. The question here is whether there is a liturgical priesthood in the new covenant. And as is clear, there was a group set apart by different rules than the whole congregation of believers. That includes the bishops, the elders, and the deacons, because they were ordained by the laying on of hands. So now we come to the third characteristic of liturgical worship, which is sacrifices and an altar on which is centered the worship of the people. As mentioned earlier, the center of the worship is now on the redemptive and victorious work of Christ to free us from sin. This was the center of the rituals of the early church. This is in line with the Christ-centeredness that the early church practiced that went beyond the liturgy to the interpretation of the scriptures, to how we live our lives, and to how we see things in the world around us. With this in mind, we can observe five clear rituals in the New Testament that are centered on Christ and thus form the heart of Christian liturgical worship. This does not mean that these were the only existing rituals, but these are the ones that appear clearly in the New Testament. These are 1. Baptism and the laying on of hands. 2. Gathering together on Sunday which was already mentioned earlier. 3. The Eucharist. 4. Ordination, which we just mentioned. and 5. The Agape Meal. To further illuminate these, there is a very early Christian text that was written in the mid-first century, before some of the books of the New Testament were written for that matter, called the Didache, that describes Christian living and worship. 
This text provides context for the rituals mentioned in the New Testament, because it also focuses on some of them, but from the point of view of how to conduct oneself within the rituals. This, along with its early date, makes the Didache significant. In our discussion of these rituals, wherever the Didache provides insight, it will be quoted. The first ritual a Christian went through was baptism. This is because baptism is a ritual of initiation. Rituals of initiation, which are present in all cultures, are those rituals by which we enter into an age of life, a way of life, a profession, or the community. Baptism is the ritual that initiates people into the way and community of Christ. The way baptism is described in the New Testament is that it was done by fully immersing a person under water. The Didache adds that if immersion was not possible or practical, then a person could be baptized by pouring water on their head. Further, a person was baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It was also preceded by fasting for one to two days on the parts of the one baptizing and the one being baptized. Later on, attested from at least the late 2nd century, those wishing to be baptized had to complete a course of learning about the faith, called catechetical instruction, and they were baptized on Easter Eve to signify their dying to the world and rising with Christ. They were also clothed in white, signifying that they have become pure in Christ. Now, baptism was also followed by the laying on of hands, which was the way that the early Christians received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Altogether, these signified the new birth of the one who has entered into the life of Christ, and by these, they have become part of the body of Christ. Then there is the ritual of the Eucharist. This is the only sacrifice that the New Covenant liturgy has. It was called the Lord's Supper, as in 1 Corinthians 11. It is unlike Old Testament sacrifices because it is not one sacrifice adding to another, but it is the once and for all sacrifice of our Lord Jesus accessed in the Eucharist. It does not repeat the sacrifice of the Lord, but it allows us to partake of that one sacrifice every time we partake of the Eucharist. The table on which this sacrifice was offered was called an altar, as is clear from Hebrews 13 verses 10 through 13. It uses the word thesiastirion, which also referred to the altar in the temple. It reads, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals, whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin, are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore let us go forth to him, outside the camp, bearing his reproach. These verses show that this is a recapitulation because we go to him outside the camp as well, because our Lord was crucified outside the city gates. I once heard the Eucharist summarized by His Eminence Metropolitan Bishop Serapion of the Coptic Diocese of Los Angeles in the following manner. He said that when we come to the Eucharist, it is like we are time-traveling to sit at the table with our Lord Jesus Christ and the Apostles during the Last Supper. The Eucharist is the way to access the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, not a repetition, because His sacrifice is once and for all.
The Didache explains that only those who have been baptized may partake of the Eucharist. It also has some prayers over the cup and the bread, and after having partaken of the Eucharist. These are to be found in chapters 9 and 10 of the Didache. The first prayer reads, Now concerning the Eucharist, thus give thanks. First concerning the cup, We thank you, our Father, for the holy vine of David your servant, which you have made known to us through Jesus your servant. To you be the glory forever. And concerning the broken bread, we thank you, our Father, for the life and knowledge which you made known to us through Jesus your servant. To you be the glory forever. Even as this broken bread was scattered over the hills and was gathered together and became one, so let your church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. For yours is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forever. After the Eucharist, there was this prayer. We thank you, Holy Father, for your holy name which you caused to tabernacle in our hearts, and for the knowledge and faith and immortality which you made known to us through Jesus your servant. So you be the glory forever. You, Master Almighty, created all things for your name's sake. You gave food and drink to men for enjoyment, that they might give thanks to you. But to us, you freely gave spiritual food and drink, and life eternal through your servant. Before all things, we thank you that you are mighty. To you be the glory forever. Remember, Lord, your church, to deliver it from all evil and to make it perfect in your love. And gather it from the four winds, sanctified for your kingdom, which you have prepared for it. For yours is the power and the glory forever. Let grace come, and let this world pass away. Hosanna to the God of David. If anyone is holy, let him come. If anyone is not so, let him repent. Maranatha. Amen. The Eucharist is the most intimate Christ-centered ritual that the Church offers. Even when walking into an apostolic church today and watching the service, you realize quickly that it is all centered on the Eucharist, that is on the body and blood of Christ, and this is what unites the church. We see that we are given our identity in Him and that He is in our midst. Contrast that with modern Protestant churches where the center is the sermon. There is nothing that immediately and so powerfully immerses you into Christ like having everything center on the Eucharist. To make clear how powerful this was, let us go to the book of Revelation. The book, which is full of liturgical overtones, ends with the marriage supper of the Lamb, who is our Lord. It presents an image of the New Jerusalem, which is a symbol of heaven, coming down to the earth. The two have become one. And what is done after all this? Why have the two come together? To have the supper of the Lamb. This imagery is that of the Eucharist, which as mentioned earlier was called the Lord's Supper. This is the same word used here. For the first readers of Revelation, the Lord's Supper is what would have come to mind when reading this passage. Then there was also a ritual called the Agape Meal. This meal is explicitly called this in Jude 12. What is translated as love feasts in Greek is teis agapes, which is the plural for love. This is the name for a meal that was shared by Christians in the evenings on Sundays, as is attested in the writings of the early church. Yet, 
There is a pagan governor in the first decade of the 100s named Pliny the Younger, who described this meal among many other aspects of Christian worship to the emperor Trajan. He said that Christians gathered in the mornings on Sunday to worship Christ as a god, and in the evenings on Sundays to eat a common meal together. When that is considered, that illuminates something in 1 Corinthians 11. While it is clear that 1 Corinthians 11 is talking about the Lord's Supper, there is also mentioned an occasion for eating together, over which St. Paul rebukes the Corinthian church. This is the agape meal. So let's recap. With some digging, we were able to determine what the New Covenant liturgy looked like. Now this formed the heart of Christian worship. In the early church, it inspired reflection and deepened the early church's understanding of who they were as those who centered their lives on Christ. Due to this reflection, the liturgy expanded in the early church. This is not to say that it fundamentally changes so much as this understanding of life centered on Christ and the liturgical worship that followed from that, along with its rituals, took more vibrant form as the first several centuries of Christianity passed. How the liturgy developed in these centuries, we will explore in the third and final episode on the liturgy in the early church. We will also consider the significance of the liturgy by engaging anthropology, psychology, and neuroscience, and how that can deepen our liturgical prayers and worship. Thank you for listening. If you found this episode to be beneficial or interesting, please subscribe to my podcast and share it with your friends and family. You can also visit my website, danielhannawriter.com, where I have written articles and a list of recommended books, including much of what I mention on my podcast. I have also written on many different aspects of the Christian faith, from the Bible to spirituality to apologetics, book reviews, dialogues, patristics, and philosophy.